0: This audio recording is of our Easter Sunday service at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at RestorationRoadChurch.com. Welcome, my name is Sam, and uh, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. If not, we got them in the front and the back. You can just snag one as you're pretending to get coffee. Uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47, which might surprise some of you, but that's okay. So, Good morning, especially to those who are visiting <clears throat> excuse me, our church for the first time, for those who are here for the first time in a long time, and those who have been here the whole time. We love you as well. Today is uh, Easter Sunday, and it is uh, a day that we celebrate the most important event in human history. It is the event that distinguishes Christianity from all other possible and existing religions. And that is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps it will shock you, um, we or I didn't prepare a special uh, Easter sermon today. Um, I'm not a big fan of them, honestly. And by that, I mean this. I firmly believe and trust that the Lord has us exactly where we're supposed to be in Genesis 47 for a reason. Suffice to say, every sermon, if you didn't know, should actually make much of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ every Sunday. And that's because, if you didn't know, every single page of the Bible is about Jesus consider the day that Jesus what we commemorate today the day that Jesus rose from the dead if you were to read the narrative of that through the gospel of Luke you would read into Luke chapter 24 and there you would read the story of Jesus resurrected Jesus Revealing Himself to two of His disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem after having witnessed the crucifixion. They're sad. They're despondent. And they're talking about something and Jesus walks up to them all kind of hidden. Doesn't reveal who He is. And He goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're saying, oh, we're talking about what happened in Jerusalem. You know, those those terrible things. And they're like, what things? And the two disciples look at him. Are, are you? Are you kidding me? Where? Where, are, where have you been? This is the road from Jerusalem. Like, haven't you heard what happened? That that Jesus Christ, the one that we thought was going to redeem us, the one we thought was going to save us, the one that we believed in and followed, they killed. He said, "Oh." And he goes, and and. What's worse is it's the third day today. And some women went to the tomb and they saw it was empty and other disciples went and saw and the body wasn't there. We don't know what happened. And so, we're upset. And they're walking away towards a small town called Emmaus. And this is what Jesus said to them. He said, oh foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then He gives them the best history lesson you can ever imagine. And it says, beginning with Moses, which would include the five first books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the prophets, what did he do? He interpreted to them all the Scriptures concerning himself. Basically, he said, let me show you where Jesus Christ is and his death and his, he later reveals, resurrection. Ta-da, guys, I'm alive. Is on every page of the Bible. And so it doesn't matter where we preach from, as long as we preach from the Bible, the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob that we've been going through and the story of Joseph, all of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we call it, is actually the beginning of the story of Jesus. It didn't start at Christmas or in the beginnings of the Gospel of Luke. We've spent a lot of months going through the story of Joseph And for those who don't know, really simply stated the the story of Joseph is the story, think about this, for those who have any kind of familiarity with the story of Jesus, the story of Joseph in Genesis from chapters 37 to 50 is the story of a loved and favored and faithful son who is, for all intents and purposes, killed by those that He loves only to rise from the dead at the right hand of the throne to become Savior of the world and honor His Father. That's the story of Joseph. Story of Jesus. Story of Joseph. Story of Jesus. Which one? Both. It points to Jesus. And their stories both the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus, is one of suffering, is one of pain, but it's also one of triumph over the greatest of enemies. Joseph's story is about God not merely being in the the midst of suffering, but actually being in control of it. And really, what makes the, the story of Joseph, so incredible, and even the story of Jesus, so incredible, and dare I say, put your own story in there, is that the suffering that is experienced is not evidence of of God's cruelty or His absence or His weakness. What we find out in this story, as you see in Joseph and in Jesus, in the end, it's the very proof of God's love and God's presence and God's power. That's the story. And so we all come with brokenness. We all come with suffering. We all come with pain. And my hope is to, even in the midst of Genesis 47, give you hope. Real quickly, to catch everyone up who has not been here with us. Joseph, this guy that we're going to be talking about, is not killed, but he's sold into slavery by his brothers by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, Joseph falls into prison, only to rise to power in Egypt. And by the grace of God, famine strikes the entire world. And God will save the entire world through this nation called Egypt. And Joseph's brothers, by the grace of God, are forced to go to Egypt to get food from Joseph. And by the grace of God, Joseph saves his brothers and invites his entire family to live with him in Egypt after forgiving them and loving them and ultimately redeeming them from their suffering. Genesis 47, where we are going to begin, marks the settlement of Jacob's family as they've come and invited and now they're settling in Egypt. And as difficult as it is to believe, you're just going to have to trust me, it does connect to Easter. The resurrection of Joseph, we'll call it, and the salvation that it secures for the family ends up transforming Jacob dad's view of life and his view of death and his view of the afterlife. And in the same way, Genesis 47 is, is not a means like, let me tell you the seven proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to assume that is true. But what it does is it challenges any of us, and especially those of you who say you believe. Those of you who say you believe in the resurrection, this is going to challenge us to consider what it actually means to believe that. So let's read the first 12 verses of Genesis 47. It says this, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? What do you do for a living? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph said, brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's huge. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourney are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of life of my fathers in the days of their sojourney. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession of the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So let's just stop there for a second. What you saw was as, as Joseph comes in, he takes his family and brings them before Pharaoh. And the first thing he does is bring his brothers, or at least a few of them, and they follow Joseph's instructions who had previously said, look, tell them you're shepherds. I know that's an abomination in Egypt, but it'll work out well for you to identify as an abomination. And so they are asked what do you do for a job and they say we're shepherds and so they secure the right to settle in the best of the land where pharaoh keeps all of his livestock and they are actually put in charge of it and then we see joseph brings his dad before pharaoh old man jacob and you can imagine old man jacob hobbling in to the throne room Before a man that is surrounded by every imaginable symbol of wealth and fame and power. He is brought before Pharaoh. And if you historically read about the the opulence and the the wealth and the power of the Pharaohs, you have to try and imagine all these symbols and servants and all these things around him. Gold everywhere and, and, and precious wealth everywhere. He is the greatest king leading the greatest nation on earth. And Jacob comes into the presence of a man who is not even considered fully a man. He is considered immortal. He's coming before a man who many believe is God or party to and, and able to speak with the gods. He has a foot in both worlds. And what does Jacob do? He blesses him. Twice. He blesses him twice. And this is not like, you kind of think of like the Pharaoh going, oh, that's cute. right? That's cute. Cute old man. Blessing me. ha ha. ha thank you. This is not what's going on here. It's not a, some kind of greeting. Just like, oh, blessings I come in the name of... No, it's, just not, it's not just a greeting. It's not just the, the misguided gesture of an old but respectable man. Jacob's blessing of Pharaoh as he walks in and as he leaves is a declaration of the supremacy of the one true God whom Jacob believes. Jacob, think about this. He's not impressed by what he sees. He's not dazzled by what the best of the world has to offer as he comes in. He's not intimidated by the power of a man who is called the morning and evening star who can declare what is and that is. Jacob's not even grateful. He doesn't come in and say, thank you for showing us such kindness. Thank you for giving us such nice land. He doesn't thank him. And it's not that he doesn't appreciate that he has found refuge in Egypt, but Jacob knows the one who is truly saving and is truly ruling. Even Pharaoh. Jacob serves the God who speaks the one who told him, "I will be with you, Jacob, I will protect you, Jacob. I will bring you out of Egypt, Jacob, and I will make you a great nation, Jacob." Pharaoh is just a putz. It's a tool. He's a small little man in the economy of a sovereign God. And Jacob knows that. And when he's asked, "How old are you, Jacob?" we gain insight into Jacob's perspective on life, which has been shaped by the promises of God. And what does he say? My days of my sojournings are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days and years of my life. We'll learn a couple things about his perspective on life. Things that would help us who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The first, he says, life is... A journey. He's a sojourner. We've talked about this before. This is not merely that Egypt is not Jacob's home. The earth is not Jacob's home. Jacob is just passing through Egypt. Literally, it'll be a 400 year passing through. But he is just passing through life. This is not his home. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 is this amazing chapter in the Bible that talks about all these kind of heroes of the faith. Many are not very heroic, but it emphasizes their faith. And one common thing it says in Hebrews chapter 13 of them all, it says, chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, was gone through all this list of people. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So all these people of faith had this mentality, we are strangers and exiles on this earth. And it goes on. It says, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Like if I'm a stranger from an exile, if I'm a sojourner in this place, there's a homeland I'm thinking of that I plan to get back to. Verse 15 in Hebrews chapter 11 says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, the Bible says, they desire a better country. I love that word. A Better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared them a city. Jacob sees himself as a traveler on his way to a better country. And as such, he is not impressed by the things of the world. He's not attached to the things of the world. He doesn't care about the things of the world because he's thinking about, he's driven towards, he is eagerly waiting for the better country. You know, viewing our time in this world as a journey through this world changes our relationship to the world. We don't hold on to things so tightly. We don't covet things so deeply. We look at things completely differently because we know that we are just passing through. One of the most important things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves is simply this. This is not all there is. This is not all there is. There is another place. There is another world. And it's best that we get our hearts set on that world. Our minds set on heavenly things that we might walk through this world with open hands. You see, everything in this world I am convinced is a momentary means to help us, as Paul says in Acts 17, to feel our way toward eternal life with God. Every single thing in this life. What do you mean by that? I mean every single thing in this life. Every wonderful experience, every horrible experience, every animal, every mountain, every marriage, every relationship, every single thing is momentary. And it's a means to help us feel our way toward eternal life with God. I live, and I would call everyone to live as Jacob does, with a different loyalty in this life. And that's because for those who in Christ, you have a different destiny in the next. A different place. He says, we're just passing through, but that's not all he says about his journey. He says, yeah, life's a journey. He says, life's a short one and a hard one. For some of us, that's really easy to believe. He reveals that his life has been short and his life has been hard, and which is strange, to hear a 130-year-old man saying life's been short. He hasn't lived as long as his dad or his grandfather. He will live another 17 years. He'll die at 147. He would be like a poster child for Good Morning America. Like, 147, right? Oldest guy ever. 147 years. I know as I am not old, I am... 43. I'm older than... Some of you are like, that's old. Some of you like, that's young. Like, whatever. I'm like right in the middle, I guess. But I've noticed that the older I get, the quicker time passes. Years go by. Like, days used to go like, you're like, whoa, what? I'm how old now? That used to be old. Like, why did things hurt where they didn't hurt before? Like, things are going fast. My kid is like huge. He's driving. and they, What is going on? It's like, please slow down. So at 130 years, you can imagine Jacob's like, like things are just going by fast. And he looks back in his life and he says, it's been short. In Psalm 90, Moses cries out to God and he says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. See, numbering our days kind of carries with it this connotation of, of living intentionally living with purpose every moment because you know that you're not guaranteed the next so life is short and for those who who experience loss in their life for those who who get diagnosis from doctors who say this many days that's very real to you very real and I would hope that it would be real to all of us. We're not guaranteed another breath. But also, he says, life has been hard, right? We must not also number our days, but we must acknowledge that it's difficult. We must admit our weakness. In reflecting on 130 years of life, Jacob recognizes, he says, my days have been full of evil. And... To be fair, some of that is because he committed some sin. And some of that is because there was some sin committed against him. That colors his life. That's a lens that he looks back through and says, man, things have been messed up for 130 years. The journey through life with God, as I said, it's not pain-free. But that pain, that weakness, that deficiency in us and in others, that brokenness, you know what that is a sign of? That something is wrong with the world. That's the whole picture of death. Like when when death comes upon us or upon those we love, we go, that just doesn't seem right. Something's broken. Yes, it is. I believe that the hardness of life forces man to face the reality of his smallness. And it reveals the need for a savior that can do more than just give me a new and improved life. Like I need, you know, five steps to a better life. That doesn't help me. Because my six steps just gonna like take me back to remind me how stinky it is. I need a brand new life. I need a life that that buries the old one and gives me a new one. Oh, what where is that going? Yeah. I need someone with the power to give me a brand new life. Let's keep going. Verse 13 of Genesis chapter 47 i going to read to 26. He says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. And Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the fa- money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes for our money's gone? And Joseph answered, well, give me your livestock and I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys and he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from the Lord. Our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them and the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, He made them servants from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest He did not buy. For the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them before they did not sell their land. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land and at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and fourth fifth shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it be please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So this chapter in, the, in this text shifts from talking about Jacob and Goshen to Joseph and Egypt, but it's still connected with Jesus. I'll prove it to you. So the narrative records, right, the, the final years of the seven-year famine, and the famine gets really bad. It doesn't decrease in intensity. And although Joseph had prepared Egypt in advance, he had, he had kind of laid up these tons and piles of grain, eventually... Their own people who would purchase it are unable to because they are out of money. And they're now on the brink of starvation and they're penniless. So, when all the money is spent, they come, they're like, Yeah, we got no money. Um, Can you give us food? And the first time they come to Joseph, he buys all their livestock and he gives them food for a year. And then that year passes by rather quickly and they return and say we need more food but just so you know we got nothing to give in exchange we got no we got no money we got no livestock all we got is our land and us so you can buy us as slaves you can buy our land to work it some commentators go man look how corrupt joseph has gotten he has let all this power go to his head and now he's abusing these people Others view it as, well, Joseph's just a shrewd businessman. And still others really look at this as like a political statement about private property, taxation, or all kinds of other things. It gets crazy. In truth, I actually don't believe the passage about Joseph as much. It's about the people who come to be, quote, saved by Joseph in their own words. You see... Everyone, including you and I, have to eat. We have to eat physically or we die. And we have to eat spiritually or we die. And we will all eat something. Everyone has to eat. The question is what will you feast on? You see, everyone, I believe, is looking for a hero. A Savior to rescue them from starvation in life. Where you feel desperate. Where you feel hungry. You feel like, I have a need. Maybe it's a need for meaning. Maybe it's a need for joy. Maybe it's a need for security. I have a need. And we're, when we're starving for those things, when we're starving for pleasure or intimacy or security or hope, we naturally look to something or someone to save us from what we imagine or what we experience as hell. This is hell. How can I get out of this hell? Or how can I avoid that hell that I imagine? And so we make functional saviors. Saviors out of career. Who believe will give us the, the meaning and the dignity that we so desperately want or the wealth that we need. We make saviors out of romance. Out of people. We make saviors out of family. We find our worth and value on how good a parent we are or how many kids we have or don't have. We make saviors out of beauty and do everything we can to, to try and avoid getting old. But in the end, none of them satisfy. And why is that? Because none of them last. Given enough time, they all fail. Careers will end. Beauty will fade. Wealth will be spent. Given enough time and enough trial, all saviors that are man-made fail. For the Egyptians, guess what they quickly realize? You can't eat silver and gold. Here, I I, I need food or I'm going to die. I'll give it up. In the end, you see what they did? They gave up everything they own. They gave up everything they own and they end up becoming slaves in order to be saved. We have to realize something. That there's a hunger beyond the hunger, right? Right? There's a deep, abiding hunger that every man and woman has. And it will not be satisfied by an earthly Savior. It's only when you surrender your ownership of your lives and your stuff to Jesus, and you work for Him and unto Him, that you will actually experience pleasure, And security that lasts beyond death. Because guess what? Hope in Jesus is something that cannot be taken away by anything. Not even death. Jesus is the only one and the only place where we can find the strength to journey through this short and hard life. Jesus is the only one who saves. Jesus is the only one who sustains. Jesus is the only one who satisfies and gives a hope that cannot be robbed no matter what happens to you in your life, even your death. And for many of us, we don't believe we're going to die tomorrow. We don't think about our death very often until we get to the very end. And guess where Jacob is? At the very end. Let's leave these last passages here. In verse 27. It says, Thus Israel, which is another name for Jacob, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147 years. Old dude. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. Weird. Don't worry. It's cultural. It promised to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me! And he swore to him, and Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And I know you read that kind of stuff and you're like, "All right, next chapter, right? Don't do that. God put it there for a reason. The fact that death comes to us all is no more evident than here at the end of chapter 47. See, even the Egyptians, if they, which they do, they experience a temporary reprieve from their suffering. They will all one day We also see that Jacob, right, Jacob is this guy who wrestled with Jesus, like wrestled with God. In the flesh, like wrestled with him. You're like, dude, that guy's like studly, never wrestled with God, never had God speak to me directly like God spoke to Jacob, and yet this guy will die. Think of all of them, Moses. Moses. Talk to God as a friend, face to face. Will die, did die, is dead. Paul, who was raised up to the third heaven and heard things he couldn't even you know, utter, was given a thorn in his flesh so he didn't get prideful about all the secrets he was told, right? Dead. Peter, who saw Jesus transfigured. Peter, who saw Jesus crucified and met the resurrected, dead. Everyone dies. Death is the great equalizer. It is the great equalizer for all of us, right? Death comes to everyone. The most beautiful. Like, I'm sure guys don't do this, right? But women, like, yeah, she's beautiful, right? She's going to die one day. Get old, wrinkly. Dead. Those athletes, right? They're like, man, that guy's a mate. Going to die. Those who are successful, going to die. Powerful, going to die. As I've gotten older and I start to revisit cuz like the 80s are coming back it's awesome. Love the 80s. But as I start to go and see all like the people who I thought were good looking and awesome and, and, and amazing in the 80s now like you guys are old. Like you guys just look like old and like, nasty old. It's kind of depressing, right? Some of the stars that you're like, "Yeah, I remember that." <gasps> Ooh. What happened? They're dying. Death comes to everyone. And on his deathbed, Jacob is calling his son to him and says, Don't bury me in Egypt. Remember, before Jacob had come into Egypt, he stopped right on the border at Beersheba, which was Abraham's kind of home base. And he worshiped God in fear. And God met him there, and He spoke to him, and He said, "Look, not only will I go with you down there, not only will I protect you, but I'm going to bring you back to, again and make you a great nation." Right, his, he remembers that. So as he's as he's dying, he's thinking beyond death. Because I mean, I, I'll tell you right now, I don't care what you do with my bones. I don't care. I'm not going to be like spread my ashes over Mount Rainier. I don't care. I don't care what you do with my body. It's just a body, gone, whatever. But like, what why why do you care so much, Jacob, about what to do to your bones? You're dead, right? Carve me up, give me to organ donors, whatever. But he cares. Like, well, why? Because you're getting insight into what he's thinking about. His request is a confession of deep belief in God's promises beyond death. What God promised to do beyond even His death. It says it in the Bible so many times that the psalmist, one of the sons of Korah, he put faith in the God who he said would ransom his soul from the power of the grave. In his pain, the prophet Job, you know Job, remember Job, painful Job? He cried out, For I know my Redeemer lives. And at last I will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed yet in my flesh I shall see God. And the patriarch Jacob is a man who is placing his faith in the promises of a God who has said I will bring you up again. Each of these men acknowledged the reality that all of us are going to face. Guess what? Sooner or later, You and I are going to die. And the question remains for all who realize that undeniable fact. What happens after you die? What is your hope after death? I challenge you, for those who don't know Jesus, to consider the only one who ever overcame death. That is what distinguishes Christianity from any other faith. The truth of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who is alive today. Jesus Christ is not some Galilean peasant that that died a, a... Martyr's death tragically, never to be seen again. Jesus was the Son of God in human flesh. And He died, and three days later, He rose again. And that is what my entire life and my death is based on. Anyone who confesses their trust in Jesus to save you from your sin will have life beyond death. And I warn you, if you trust In anything or anyone else other than Christ to save you, including yourself. The only thing you have waiting for you is a second death beyond death. Do you know the Bible talks about a second death? Happy Easter. But as I said in the beginning, Genesis 47 doesn't prove the seven reasons Jesus rose from the dead, but what it does do for those who say you believe, say you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? That you, uh, this is what I believe, yes. Then you ought to consider what it means to hold that conviction. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, man, we're a pitiful bunch of weirdos. That's pretty much what Paul calls us. Like, if there's no resurrection, then what are we doing? We're delusional. We are hopeless. But there is a resurrection. Jesus did rise from the dead. And so I would encourage you In three ways. If you believe in Jesus' resurrection, then live as if this place is not your home. Someone who lives as if this is all there is, and someone who lives as if this is not all there is, have very different lives. They approach every aspect of life differently. Relationships, differently. Money, differently. Treasure, time, health, differently. Suffering, differently. If this place is all there is, if this place is, your, yeah, you better grab as much as you can right now and, and devote yourself to success and waste your life, because this is not all there is. If you believe in the resurrection, then live as if this place is not your home. And if you believe in the resurrection, then live as if your life is not your own. Your life is not yours if Jesus Christ bought it with His blood and rose from the dead to give you something new for Him to use, for His glory. And it's amazing. For those who in Christ, if you want to think about this, and this is what I mean by perspective of resurrection. When you're with Jesus for 70 million years, that little 70-year blip of life that you had, the worst sufferings you might have experienced are going to feel like stubbing your toe. Remember when, remember last time you stubbed your toe? No, you don't. And the greatest successes, the hugest achievements are going to feel like you won the first great checkers championship. 70 years, 70 million! Perspective. This life is not yours. It's His for His glory. And in doing that, you will find your joy. But lastly, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus... Live as if your death is nothing to be scared of. Nothing to be feared. It's like this. There's no sting. Suffering, whatevs. I got Jesus, and He overcame sin, Satan, and death. And I have nothing, absolutely nothing to fear at all. We who believe in the resurrection have the same spirit of faith as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Job and David and Peter and John and Paul and any number of Christians who have died believing in the savior who would rise again and so I end with this passage to give you perspective at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 which says this which I don't have on there so we will not put it up there yet. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God so that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, this light, momentary, hard, short life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Gospel is simply a story that began in the beauty of Eden. It does go through the darkness of Egypt where Jacob finds himself right now. It climaxes on the glory of Easter, but guess what? It doesn't end till eternity. And that is where joy is found. And that's where we celebrate when we have communion every Sunday. We have two tables today just to help the flow of people coming to the table. I want to remind you, for those who do not, do not know Jesus, you don't have to leave here without knowing Him. You can confess with your mouth today that He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and be saved and join your new family of brothers and sisters in Christ. But those who do know Jesus, this table is for you And this table is a perpetual confession that you believe in another place. That you have faith in a better country. And that you realize that life, you know what, let's be honest, it's short and it's hard. But my faith is in a Savior who went through it for me and goes through it with me to take me back to be with Him one day. And so we celebrate the new life we have and we we celebrate the fact that we can be renewed every time we come to the table. But we also celebrate the fact that there will be a day when we're at the table with Jesus enjoying the fullness of what it means to be completely restored, free of sin, in the presence of His grace. Let's pray.